So welcome to the next edition of PropTech Talks, where we talk with successful PropTech founders, investors, and real estate executives about their journeys to where they are today, the nuances of the modern real estate industry, and how to capitalize on them. We're here with Luke Graham from Pi Labs. How's it going, Luke? Hello. Good. Thanks, Matthew. How are you? Pretty good. Can't complain. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to jump right into it, we're going to be talking about how Luke got to what he's doing right now with Pi Labs and look into that in a bit more detail. But tell us a bit more about yourself, Luke. Yeah, so I guess I, I always say that my relationship with the built environment began as quite a romantic one. So anybody listening would pick up that, that my accent isn't quite British, although certainly derives from here. So I was born and raised in Australia. And, and I actually learned this recently from, from a startup that we spoke to that, that real estate fever in Australia is about 6x what it is in the UK and about 3x what it is in the US. So it's on the news every day. Um, people are heavily commentating around it. It's, it's very much seen as a, a symbol of social mobility and status to have begun your property investment journey, right? And so for myself, it was you know the idea of, of not having to work as hard as my parents did in in their blue collar endeavors and uh and you, you may then pin it down to laziness so um <laughs> so, <laughs> so so i made my first property investment when i was maybe 20 21 years old which is when i was in the military in the field of engineering and started getting more interested in it started noticing i had a bit of a knack for it and uh studied it in my undergrad in my last couple of years in the military in my spare time when i could squeeze it in and uh, and then came into the sector as essentially as like an investment analyst. And I guess temperamentally noticed that I, I had a bit of an inclination towards, say, innovation change uh, and those sorts of things. And and you know, sort of doubled down, tripled down, and and got further into that over my career. You know, built and led a startup in investment in my mid twenties. Exited that in my late twenties. Um, went back for further education. Polished off another few degrees in this sort of subject area and a few adjacent ones to help out with. I, I guess with my suite of tools that I make use of. And a few years ago now, um, I came into the world of Oxford and and th through the University of Oxford onwards, then to uh, to the Pi Labs research team. Very cool. So just before we jump into Pi Labs, tell me about this startup. Yeah, so essentially in Australia versus the UK, the tax arrangements are still a lot more friendly towards what you might refer to as retail or people say mum and dad style real estate investors. They're seen as kind of a key part of the supply of private rented housing. And so the investment mathematics works out a bit better in favor of that type of landlord. And so essentially our job was to underwrite and recommend investments around the country you know, which then involves a whole bunch of different research approaches. We're looking at demographic research, looking at things like infrastructure projects and the impact that they'd have, um, you know, it's a pretty broad spectrum of research methods, which is kind of a good place to cut your teeth if you then have to be deploying others, you know, at a pretty quick rate, which is naturally what I'm doing now. Okay, cool. So you've sort of had the, had, I guess, the startup hustle and now you're- yeah. PyLabs, how would you say the culture of just working on your own thing differs to being part of PyLabs? Yeah, so I mean, the great thing with it, with PyLabs being, 
you know, the premier early stage VC in the space, the challenge or the criticism that's often leveled towards VCs broadly is when there isn't much entrepreneurial experience within those firms, if they're all financiers, as an example, or something like that. So for me, what I've found, you know, when we're dealing with our startup founders, we're, you know, 85 plus investments now at Pi Labs, right? And uh, and when I'm having conversations with them, understanding the fact that they're not just dealing with the fundraise that they may be doing when they're dealing with our investment team, but the personnel issues that they're facing, the personal developmental challenges that they're facing, you know, or the fact that they need to be a semi-guru in marketing at the beginning of the business because they're the ones running that, you know, all, all these sorts of things. I think has helped me get a useful gauge of how challenges uniquely affect each entrepreneur. And empathy is always a useful thing in business, I think, when you understand mm-hmm. the other side of the table. So today, we're in, to say the least, a very different time to what we were a few years ago. You know, a few years ago, everybody and their cousin was raising a few million and yeah. a venture deal took a lot shorter. Um, mm. yeah, I've even heard stories of founders saying, I jumped on a Zoom call, showed up a pitch deck, and I left the Zoom call and I raised money. And now I think investors are a lot more, um, a lot more um, thoughtful. Restraint. Restraint, <laughs> thoughtful. Um, they have a lot less budget yeah. to, to invest. So how are things, when it comes to PyLabs, PyLabs investment strategy, and your role at PyLabs as head of research, what are you seeing? And how is PyLabs reacting to this uh, slowing in the market? Yeah, great question. So I guess to begin with how I see it. So conveniently, I guess for me, it's not the first, you know, shakedown industry-wise that I've experienced that the company that we were just talking about, FirstLink Property was called back in Australia. Very inconveniently, I founded that company or co-founded that company a couple of months before a massive (laughs) um, revolution in the way that lending was offered to real estate investors, which saw a lot of our incumbent competitors just cease operations within months, right? It was tough. It was tough. And it was a hard sell. Suddenly people who could borrow millions to invest in real estate could borrow, you know, 300,000 or, you know, 400,000, things like this. So it was complete like identity crisis and, you know, shook the industry to the core. So in comparison, like when I look at what we're seeing right now in this economic shakedown, very different forces influencing it and different pros and cons to it. Um, One of the favorite sort of examples that I use of what's happening, you know, over this year and even signs of it last year and things like that is actually from one of my colleagues, Hugo, who's the principal in our investment team, one of the more senior members of our investment team. The way that he puts it, you know, and the data supports this is that some of the best startups are founded and funded during these periods of time for multiple reasons. Number one, as you've kind of pointed out already, the terms tend to be more realistic. We're not talking about throwing money at anyone who's got some crazy idea and suddenly they've got a two million pound round or something like that behind them. You know, so the heat is taken out of that speculative style of investment and there's a bit more frugality, if you want to put it that way, which means that investment returns are more favorable into the future, right? Mm. Um, But then you've also got this factor of through no fault of their own, a lot of very talented people end up out of their roles, out of their jobs. And in a situation where they're saying to themselves, okay, well, I either hustle and compete with thousands of others for the one job in my space, or I go and finally actually use this as an opportunity to create something on my own. 
So we're really excited about the startups that are coming through, the level of quality of the startups that are coming through. Obviously, you know, it's not too pleasant if it's coming from a place of difficulty, but something that we find quite positive and may buck the trend of the perceptions of the market is definitely around the the quality and the future opportunity for growth of a lot of the companies that we're speaking to. And, and on top of that as well, something that is being spoken about increasingly is the impact of sustainability on the real estate sector. That word is almost the word of the decades. And what we've observed happen to the customers of these startups, mm-hmm. right, is that they haven't stepped away substantially, say, from their targets, their sustainability targets that they've spoken out on already. Mm-hmm. What that means is generally innovation is required in order to facilitate this. So I think in some ways, sustainability has actually served as a rescuer to built world tech broadly, mm-hmm. prop tech more specifically, going through this time because we have to continue to innovate in order to you know, reduce embodied carbon in new builds, uh, to reduce operational carbon in existing buildings. Uh, you know, all, all these sorts of innovations throughout the real estate value chain seem to be helping us continue to move forward in a really productive direction. It's interesting that difference between what the real estate customers would like and what the VCs are doing. What I mean by that is for a real estate customer, the motivations are completely different. So things like regulations, the targets that they've already said mm. that they're going to hit, mm. and the reason that they take on technology as well. So real estate, they take technology on to improve efficiencies, improve operational efficiency and cut costs. Now it's really all about cutting costs. Maybe take insurance, for example, they take on technology to improve distribution. They take on mm. technology to grow. But real estate, they take on technology to cut costs. And with sustainability quotas coming at them like a train with the brakes broken, they look to innovation, like you said, um, to solve those problems. So it's interesting that storm. And then at the same time, this influx of founders who maybe have been let off and thought, well, s- well screw it. I'm, I can't get fired if I'm the guy who does the firing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that dichotomy. So tell me more about your role at High Labs. What does it mean to be head of research? What are the things you're focusing on at the moment? Yeah, so it's an unusual job title. It's becoming a little bit more common in venture, but you've got to really take your hat off actually to the people that hired me at PyLab and those who are doing this role or similar roles before me. Because PyLabs really was a, a very early mover when it came to having this type of function within the organization. So Essentially, the role of the research department that that I look after at PyLabs is to work in tandem with all the other functions within our business to add a layer of strategy. And so one of the big criticisms you'll regularly hear, I was only hearing this on a separate PropTech podcast earlier today, actually, of VC generally, is this idea of just, you know, what you may refer to as the shotgun approach, where people will just make 100 investments out of their fund and just hope and pray that five (laughs) perform well. And the law of numbers are in their favor when it comes to that. Like surely some of these startups have to succeed. Otherwise, Mm. you know, you've you've been very unlucky. A monkey could do that job, in other words, right? And you often (laughs) hear that in statistics, you know, getting beaten by a monkey means that, you know, even by probability's sake, you still didn't manage to beat it. But, um, but that's not very useful to strategic investors, the real estate sector who want innovation and venture as venture as a part of their innovation strategy, right? There's no point in just spraying and praying. So what the role of the research function is, is to add that layer between the investors, the real estate firms who also happen to be the customers 
and the innovators developing these technologies, right? And so what I spend most of my time doing, number one, is kind of, you might say, the foundation of our department is putting together longer form research pieces. So diving quite deep on strategic themes. We got quite strong feedback as an example from a paper we wrote on fractionalization. We looked at 165 mm -hmm. fractionalization schemes. And to make a comparison, there was an academic paper published in a leading academic journal, which only looked at 55, right? So, so we go really deep mm. on a lot of the work that we do. Another paper of ours that got quite a lot of attention about a year and a half ago now during the, during the hype cycle of the metaverse was our paper called Unreal Estate, which is where we attempted to sort the noise from the substance in the conversation yeah. that was happening around the metaverse and, uh, and then help direct investments in the right way but also come back to our strategic investors and to the ecosystem and say, okay, this is the stuff we need to take seriously. And this is the stuff that's quite silly and probably doesn't have much legs, right? Mm -hmm. And there definitely is a lot of noise when it comes to prop tech and real estate technology. That you can put these companies in two caps. You have the ones that will just maximize the yelling. That's the strategy. Um, they'll sell for a couple of years, but they typically disappear, it seems. That and way. Have, yeah. like, exactly. And then you have the ones that just maximize the product and just maximize the delivery. And they seem to be doing pretty well. So it's, it's interesting, that dichotomy. On that topic, I'd have to give a special shout out. There's an entrepreneur in our portfolio who, who takes a lot of pride in that approach. His name's Walter. He's the CEO of a, a company we invested in called Layout. So it'd be important for me Very to give cool. him a little shout out. When saying that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know him. Yeah, I do. He's very good. Cool. Good. <laughs> so which companies do you think are going to make it? Are we going to see a lot of companies start to disappear? What's going to be happening over the next couple of years? Yeah, look, um, something that we've spoken about internally and that we've discussed with some of our stakeholders is this concept of the maturation of prop tech. And, and we started having that conversation before the economic mm -hmm. shakedown, although the signs were there, certainly, you know, we were seeing inflated material costs and all those sorts of things. But we look at like how the sector is and some things that are sticking out. Some of the complaints we're hearing from real estate innovation managers, plus the data that we're seeing in the sector, what we're seeing our investment team looking at. All those sorts of things. I, I think it's quite safe to say that the proliferation of prop tech point solutions, so solutions looking at targeting a specific problem, like that, that's been quite significant over the last few years. Now, there's a good thing around that, which is that specialized products naturally are able to hyper focus in one area and solve that problem well. Mm. The downside is that what we're hearing repeatedly from innovation managers at real estate firms is, I can't have another tab open in my web browser, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can't have another login that I need to manage, you know, all these sorts of things. And, and so we're certainly seeing this transition where there are increasing numbers of examples of, say, geographic oriented M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And so an example, one of our portfolio companies was acquired by one of their contemporaries in the US to create you know, this intercontinental platform. Actually, it was HQO, which is quite a familiar name. And it was OfficeApp from our portfolio that was acquired. You're seeing uh, real estate firms wanting to bring some of that knowledge in-house and they're doing strategic acquisitions in those ways. Sometimes they're great for the entrepreneurs. In other ways, you kind of may be selling yourself short by essentially selling yourself to one customer um, rather than being a wider um, net, say, or having a wider net of customers. And, and someone who's been quite prolific in the acquisitions game is JLL. I think that they were kind of at the frontier of that. And you've also got sort of 
multifunctional or platform style acquisitions where you're integrating your value chain or you say vertical integration. And, and so, you know, as an example, a platform that may offer planning data, the provision of planning data may also get involved with real estate transactions or something like that. And you end up having a more holistic platform. And, and you see this all the time in innovation waves. So what we expect to see in the coming years, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll see some firms fall over that don't really speak to a significant pain point in the sector. And mapping those pain points, I think, is important. Something that was quite fascinating to us is that when we're looking at pain points, you know, sustainability, something we were talking about before, almost mm -hmm. cliche, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when you look a little bit beyond that, we were looking at, okay, well, what are some innovation teams focusing on? And we found that for one of the first times since we've been observing this, rather than specific problem statements, we actually saw with this AI boom that people were actually fo focusing on the tech first and looking at ways of appropriating it or applying it, right? Mm -hmm. That makes things a bit more confusing for entrepreneurs because mm -hmm. the rules of the game historically were, let's find what the biggest pain points are, going back to your point around cutting costs or trying to make money. And there's a fascinating mm -hmm. uh, economic concept there called prospect theory. People are scared of loss. So mm -hmm. there's loss aversion heuristic it's referred to. So focusing on loss aversion can be a great way to market something. Um, much more effectively than gaining something that someone doesn't have. But then the rules of the game shift. Now, all of a sudden, we need to squeeze the acronym AI into our product in order to be able to sell because, you know, all of a sudden, everyone's focusing on, oh, well, AI is going to transform our business. And so we need to integrate AI. So that changing of the rules of the game, how prevalent, how long will that last before a new shiny object comes? No doubt AI has many relevant applications and use cases, but when it comes to medium, short to medium term future, there are some of the dynamics that I think are at play. So a prop tech, when it's starting out, focusing on a niche, on let's assume sort of the traditional rules of entrepreneurship, you focus on a niche that's solved mm. the biggest pain point possible, and you want to just focus on that and deliver as much value there. But as, as they start to grow... You know, you, you can gain probably a few clients like that, but you can't gain everyone because they've already mm. got quite a few solutions now. So becoming holistic as part of a bigger system. So merging is a good way to do that. Do you think potentially developing more products and building their own community as a strategy or does that become quite difficult? Yeah, that's interesting. And with my VC hat on, I would say one of the challenges of that is that your portfolio companies can start overlapping a bit and starting, you know, having a bit of competition. And of course, the dream for a VC is that those resources come together and something really productive comes out of it. But but yeah, I think naturally that's going to have to play out. For We're seeing a number of our portfolio companies do this. We have Bright Spaces as an example in our portfolio mm. that started as essentially a leasing tool and it was like developed to become also more of a space planning tool. And I guess there are a whole bunch of other examples. You know, we have, as an example, talking before about extended reality and things like that, we have a VR training platform called Moon Hub, which is kind of extending their suite of training products, but they have kind of stuck to training more so than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's interesting to see the way that they diversify the product. But yeah, it's a good point on exactly how and why and the appropriate time to actually do it because you don't want to start, you know, one of the favorite quotes from my former business partner and prior to that was actually my boss, Tony Hayek would always say, and I'm sure he got this from someone else, that if you try to be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to anyone. And I think that's always something to keep in mind when you're diversifying your product offering is like, what's the right mix here? Am I just doing this because I'm being reactive to one sale that I missed out on, which isn't representative of the whole market? Very interesting. So 
The prop techs today that are, I think there are still quite a few prop techs onto unicorn status. And then unicorn right now is kind of a weird term because valuations are lower, but the prop techs on the way to that larger size, um, you know, they are starting to launch backend product after backend product that all sort of fit together. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really interesting to see how it's going to play out over the next few years. And no doubt it's got some exciting times ahead. I think just to step away from the, the industry a little bit, I'd love to learn more just about the future for you and the future for PyLabs. And thinking about everything we've just spoken about for the last few minutes on the direction of the industry, how's that fitting together? What are your plans and what are PyLabs plans? Yeah. So for PyLabs, I think one of the key things for us is that naturally with the, the maturation of the sector, moving with that is going to be quite important. I think one thing that we've been quite privileged to enjoy, that there's always a trade-off with early stage venture capital, right? Which is that early stage, you're at the frontier of innovation. When you're in late stage venture capital, you're essentially, think of a more appropriate way to frame this, that what I was about to say probably wasn't too pleasant, but you're, you're, you're in another the wake. <laughs> yes, yes, you're in the wake. You're, you're a few years down the pipeline, right? You're not seeing things when they first emerge, when the idea comes and when the technology is first being developed. You're there when they sort of got scale and you're making more of a financial style of investment rather than mm. a strategic one with financial outcomes, right? Mm. So I think for us, since we've really developed our profile here, something that's been really exciting, uh, at least on my side of the business at PyLabs, has been the data and the relationships that we've been able to make use of to make the best use of that data. So there's a paper I'm putting together right now as an example on essentially on the one-year anniversary of the launch of ChatGBT and the ensuing hype that followed it, right? And the resources that I have available to me to get this work done in a unique way and not just to be more new noise about ChatGPT, I think is something that's going to be quite central to our growth and development. So having that unique position in the market of sitting between a lot of different players, having useful data, which can be deployed strategically for firms. And what that then means is being a key part of, of this transition in the sector um, not just environmentally, which we're speaking about a lot now with, you know, energy efficiency and things like that. But I personally, you know, coming to the personal level, have a, have a really strong interest. You know, I've studied, as I said to you, I've studied quite a few different academic disciplines and therefore know the psychological and the civil benefits of, of biodiversity, right? And I think biodiversity is going to be an increasingly significant part of the built environment. We're seeing legislation come in, regulation come in, in all sorts of European jurisdictions already on this. Um, so on a personal level, I think that's going to be a really interesting one to see how tech can facilitate that because you don't think of tech straight away when you think of trees and birds and you know insects. But even beyond that, I think long-term, something that's going to be important for the built environment that us at PyLabs are going to have to address. Everyone's talking about pre-2050, right? Everyone's talking about all these important things that we need to do pre-2050. And of course, that's the immediate concern. We're going to have to address that. But I think like something that I'm paying increasingly more attention to and that I'm planning on doing quite a bit of work on in the coming months is, okay, 2050, that's only 25 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. We'll both hopefully still very much be in the industry. So the question to me is beyond this period of time, we're talking about aging populations, substantially aging populations here, and then a massive drop-off. When you and I die, and when millennials are gone, and maybe the generation after us, we're going to have a massive glut of this aged care housing and many other types of pieces of real estate. And if mm -hmm. we've built these well, then they've still got usable life. 
So how can adaptive, instead of adaptive reuse being a conversation with retrofitting offices and all those sorts of things, how can a lot more adaptability be built into every piece of real estate that we're building, that we're retrofitting, right? So that, yeah, any piece of real estate can become many other, be used for many other applications. We're retrofitting for today requirements, which is, and it's going to be tomorrow problems. So that's really interesting. Just kicking uh, the can down the road. Yeah, but no, that's a that's a, a fascinating point. So I, I suppose your vision would be like a quite a dynamic building that can uh, adjust it based on the evolving needs of a city quickly. That's a real that's a really interesting concept. And I think Christopher Wren, for those history buffs and architecture buffs, I think Christopher Wren would be a big fan of that. When the Great Fire of London happened, I think sixteen sixty six. Right, mm-hmm. you're a Brit. You had to have learned about this in school. Um, <laughs> long time ago, but, um, but, you know, he, he had this vision for a new London and, and he was disappointed that he had to follow what had already existed. London is a, a great case study when it comes to this. It's a, you know, it's considered the most magnetic city and me even being here coming from one of the most livable countries on the planet, if not the most livable country in the planet, quality mm-hmm. of life, safety, life expectancy, health, food, all those sorts of things. Why am I here in London? I'm here because of London's magnetism, right? Being in the middle of the action. But it's also a victim of a success where like it's got literally roads and and street structures embedded from 1500 or so years ago, even 2000 yeah. years ago, right? And so I guess then the question is like, what does an adaptable city look like? What do adaptable spaces look like? And and how does that address not just these environmental challenges that we very much need to address today, but the next kind of major issues that we're going to have to deal with, like essentially this century? Fascinating stuff, Luke. I could talk about this with you for a lot longer, but we do have a time. <laughs> um, Good odds, stop. <laughs> if anybody does want to see the papers that Luke is writing with PyLabs, if I'm not mistaken, Luke, these can be found on PyLab's website. Yeah, uh, so pylabs.vc forward slash insights. Wonderful to have you, Luke. It was a pleasure to have you today and looking forward to uh, hearing from you in the future. Thank you very much, Matthew. It was a pleasure. Cheers, Luke. <laughs>